Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, this is Everything Else, the FT Culture Podcast. I'm Griselda, and today is International Women's Day. I'll be talking to two of the leading writers and feminists, and two of my personal heroes, Laura Bates and Rennie Edo-Lodge, about sexism and the Me Too moment. Where are we now, and what next? Later, I'll be talking to the best-selling French writer Leila Slimani, who won the Prix Goncourt for her novel Lullaby. So as you will know, if you've been living on the planet for the past six months, there has been a radical shift in the way that we talk about sexism and specifically sexual harassment. The allegations against Harvey Weinstein, of course, unleashed many more across Hollywood, the media, politics, tech. It seemed that nowhere was exempt. But this is really more than a news story. This is daily life for women and for men too. And this is something that I really care about. It wasn't until quite recently, in fact, probably around 2012, 2013, that I really started thinking about feminism. It was then that it started entering the mainstream press much more. People were writing think pieces about fourth wave feminism. Before then, it seemed like it wasn't part of the conversation quite so much. Of course, I knew about sexism. I'd experienced it firsthand, as most women living in the world have. I had even experienced sexual harassment. I was sent hardcore pornography by email when I was 13. I was at school and the boys who did it, or I think one boy who did it was expelled, but nobody talked to me about it. Nobody sat me down and said that this was wrong, that this is not what sex looks like, this is not how women should be treated. And so I thought a a lot about sexism. I think any woman that you talk to will have a story like this, will have been groped on the tube, will have been catcalled and, and much, much worse. But it wasn't until recently, as I said, that I really joined the dots and I put all of these life experiences, my own life experiences and those of other women together and started thinking much more about the structures in place, about the language, about the way we talk about women, about the way women talk about themselves, about the kind of codes and rules for how we dress, how we should behave and also how we're represented in books, in films, in art, about how much women speak on screen, how much they don't speak on screen, who gets to speak, who gets to make art. And so today, I'm bringing you two women who have really shaped my thinking about all of this. They're both speaking at the Southbank Centre's WOW Women of the World Festival, which runs until this Sunday, the 11th of March. Rennie Edo-Lodge will be interviewing Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, one of my favourite authors who wrote Half of Yellow Sun, Purple Hibiscus, Americana. That's happening on the 10th of March. And Laura Bates is on a panel with Patrice Khan-Cullors, the co-founder of Black Lives Matter, and other feminists on the 9th of March. There are still tickets available and I urge you to go and snap them up. So now I'm going to leave the studio and walk down the river to the South Bank Centre, where I will talk to Rennie and Laura.
Both of you have been working as writers and activists in this field for at least the last five years and, and more than that. How would you say that feminism is perceived now compared to then? What has the change been? I think the urgency that I felt five years ago is more widespread. A lot more people are feeling that urgency now. There's, there's less apathy. Yeah, I think it's harder to fight for people to even recognise the problem, which doesn't mean that we've solved it yet, but I started Everyday Sexism because people kept telling me sexism doesn't exist anymore, and I think it would be harder for them to argue that now. And are we at a, mo a sort of watershed moment with Harvey Weinstein, Me Too, Time's Up? It, are, are we in a kind of pivotal moment right now, or is it too early to say that? I think it's too soon to say. I think it's a really exciting moment, and I think the courage of the millions of survivors who've come forward has been incredible and has propelled things to this fantastically exciting moment of possibility. But whether that actually translates into a concrete sort of aftermath really depends on not looking at the victims, not requiring them to do the next step of the work that needs to be done, but looking to organisations, to businesses, to government, and also looking at whether this spotlight penetrates deeper. I think it's no coincidence that we heard about these issues that they really hit the headlines when it was a group of very, you know, privileged, glamorous white women who spoke out. It's important to remember, I think, that Me Too was actually started 10 years previously by Tarana Burke, who was talking uh, in, in America about black women and about racism, and that that conversation didn't get picked up in the same way. So it's very important to ask ourselves whose stories are we hearing now and why. Yeah, but also I think that it's kind of remarkable how quickly Tarana Burke got the credit for starting the Me Too yeah. movement. That wouldn't have happened five years ago. Mm, um, she would have been shouting into the vacuum saying, hi, I started this. But actually, like, the speed with which the community was like, uh, wait, hang on, you know, and then suddenly that was just quickly subsumed into the conversation about Me Too was, was really shocking and surprising to me. And I think that's because of the, the power of community. What we've seen with you know, the aftermath of Weinstein and the Time's Up movement is community first and foremost. And I think, basically, women who are working and find themselves in some space of community, which isn't always the case with agency work or zero hours contract, but it can be the case for a lot of jobs, are feeling just an awful lot more solidarity to be able to call out sexism and misogyny in, in environments where they know that they will be backed up. In your book, Gwenny, you write about this problematic relationship between white feminism and sort of how it didn't embrace intersectionality. And then there's a sense that in the final chapter, which is in this new edition, Aftermath, it feels in a sense, more hopeful. I hope I'm not reading that wrongly. What would you say about how that has developed over these five years we're talking about? Yeah, maybe I am feeling hopeful. I think that the book came at a, the right time. Mm. There was a confluence of things largely out of my control that meant that the book came at the right time. And it hit women who are white, who call themselves feminists, mm. at the right time as well. You know, what I'm really glad is that what I was able to do with that book was really just get across what I needed to say without being interrupted. You know, the, the beauty of reading is that it's essentially active listening. Mm. I've certainly had lots of women who are white, who are feminists, saying, all of this stuff never occurred to me. And, you know, I think that when I was trying to say these things in an activist capacity, it was hard for them to hear. I, I'm not saying that things are perfect. I think that, you know, when feminists of all races are not writing books to be heard, but rather just working together on in organisations or on projects, like, it's always difficult to have those conversations it always is particularly face to face but I'm glad that I sort of created a tool where people can go away 
read, reflect and ruminate mm. um, before, you know, responding defensively? Yeah, well, I think it's this thing that white feminists have been reckoning with. I mean, certainly for myself, it's a sense that you have to acknowledge your privilege and you have to acknowledge that, yes, it's easy to spot the things that are difficult for you as a white woman, as in, you know, when men get the upper hand or that kind of thing. But at the same time, you're part of a system that hugely benefits you. And I think that has to be the first step, you know, to, to recognise that. I think I noticed very quickly when I was trying to do that, say that as an activist, people batten down the hatches really quickly. So it was important, I think, to have, to create something that allowed people to go and reflect rather than be reactionary. The problem is that not everybody can write books to be heard, so we need to be able to have this conversation face to face without, you know, sort of collapsing into defensiveness or despondency. And Laura, you write a lot about sort of equality and what the steps are that we need to take to reach that point. And thinking about this idea of privilege, I mean, I guess everybody who has some privilege might need to give some of that up in order for other people to sort of to gain some of it in a sense or to have some equality there's lots of men who feel that they will lose out to feminism do you think that fear is misplaced i do i think it's misplaced and i also don't think it's a coincidence i think it's a, a very deliberate lie that's been propagated mm. over decades by people who don't want the project of feminism to succeed i think we know it's misplaced because all of the research shows that both at a micro and a macro level when equality and diversity is achieved outcomes are better for everybody whether you look at countries you know at that level and you recognize that countries where uh, women and girls are safe and have equality perform better are safer are more peaceful or whether you look at companies and all of the research suggests that companies with greater diversity of all kinds on their boards have better returns that they have better profits and so on or whether you look at issues like our own personal lives and relationships you know the stories that we get at everyday sexism make it so clear that battling the outdated gender stereotypes that negatively impact on women also will have a hugely beneficial impact on men. We might hear in the same week, for example, from a woman who's been told she won't be considered for a promotion because she's a maternity risk and a man who's been not only denied extra paternity leave to spend time with a new baby, but really bullied and ridiculed in the workplace for asking for it. And those aren't two separate problems. They're two sides of the same coin. So I really think we have to get away from this idea that it means giving up something to accommodate others and to move towards equality it's about platform sharing it's about looking at concrete ways that we can as you said recognize our own privilege but then also thinking okay well how do I put that into practice and that doesn't diminish or take something away from us it enriches us all if I as a white woman am asked to go and speak on a radio program where they've already got four white women to take the time to think well actually the concrete thing I could do here is to suggest the names of five brilliant feminists or women of color who could go instead yeah, I think there's this really pernicious narrative, you know, even amongst the feminist community, which I wrote about in the book, which was, even if you speak about race, you are shutting things down. Mm. And in my experience, speaking about discriminations that I'm not party to, oh, it might make me feel temporarily guilty, but, but ultimately, like, it broadens my perspective in ways that I couldn't even imagine, you know? Mm. So that's absolutely this, the same, I think, for for men who are reckoning with what feminism means for them in their lives. It means that if you are not party to the discrimination, suddenly when you start to see it, you're like, wow, I really 
I've been walking around with blinkers on. Like, it absolutely broadens your perspective. It doesn't limit it in any way, shape, or form. I don't know why people are fine for ignorance. I really don't in this day and age. Mm. <laughs> like, it's, it's very frustrating. <laughs> How responsible is the media for the persistence of sexism and racism as well? What can the media do better? probably stop inviting me to come on a debate with somebody who doesn't believe racism exists. So it's, it's this idea of putting a kind of false debate, a false balance in quotes. I mean, as journalists, we're supposed to be looking at the evidence at least, right? Isn't that we've been, what we've been trained to do? So why would you invite somebody on, like a climate change denier, mm. where the evidence shows overwhelmingly this is something that's affecting the planet? And likewise, you know, I write in the book, I review the evidence that shows that drastic racial inequality when it comes to life chances exists. So if somebody invites me to come on to speak with somebody who denies that, I'm sorry, it's fake news. So can the, <laughs> it'd be great if the media could stop, you know, invite people who push fake news on for balance reasons. It's not balance. Like, can we stick to the truth here? It's very irritating. I, I mean, agree. I will, I'll never do those discussions and, and debates for that reason. I don't wish to legitimise it. But I do wor worry sometimes, particularly news journalism is actually corralling those very important conversations about the state our world is and, and putting, him in, putting them in the um, entertainment like drawer and looking for a fiery argument rather than creating something where we all learn like creating a piece of media that we learn from yeah, which is based on facts Laura you're nodding I couldn't yeah. agree more it's they want clickbait cat fights controversy I think it is partly about news media scrambling to keep up with the kind of hybrid entertainment news online that is putting out huge numbers of articles every day for clicks and it is exactly as Rennie says you know it's just being asked to go on we found the one woman who we will wheel out who actually says that she loves being groped in the workplace or whatever it is and actually it's very deliberate you know it is a very deliberate thing when they do that it's not an accident they are sending the message to their viewers that this is a balanced debate the most common request I'm getting at the moment from all different media organisations is will you come on and have a debate about whether feminism's gone too far whether Me Too has gone too far whether this is a witch hunt and that is a really deliberate perversion of a moment in history where after millions of women have experienced harassment and abuse for centuries which has had the most enormous detrimental impacts on their lives their careers suddenly perhaps five men have been held publicly accountable and the narrative has turned to oh my god it's gone too far it's a witch hunt the poor men and I think for the media to peddle that narrative by setting up a debate along those lines is incredibly irresponsible um, and incredibly frustrating I tend to write back and, and, and as, as Rennie says often point out the evidence how can we have a debate about this when the evidence shows that 54,000 women a year lose their jobs because of maternity discrimination that two women a week are killed by a current or former partner that 400,000 women a year are sexually assaulted there is no debate to be had about does sexism exist we might as well sit down and debate whether the sky is blue it's it's incredibly pernicious i think what i try to do is point out the fact that it has an impact it matters how this is framed by the media that's why it's so frustrating actually because the media has this incredible potential to be part of the solution if it wanted to and this doesn't mean not having balance by the way you know the idea that this is all in the name of balance is really interesting and for me it's very similar to when people bring out free speech as a kind of trump card to shut down any kind of upset about online 
online abuse. Actually, what does that mean? What is free speech? It doesn't include the right to threaten to rape or kill someone. And in the same way, what does balance mean? It doesn't have to mean two completely polarised opinions that don't represent the facts of the matter. It could be a balanced debate between a lot of people with very different opinions about where we go from here. It could be about debating how this has happened for so long. What enabled Weinstein to thrive? We haven't really seen that conversation happening because we jumped straight to, is it really happening or are women making a fuss about nothing? Well, yeah, and like you said, you have to actually try quite hard to find that one climate change denier, that one woman who says she enjoys sexualism. You know, it's just, it it is ludicrous when you think of even just the numbers. I mean, if you want to peddle fake news, I I heard that Donald Trump set his own (laughs) phone news organisation up, so just go and work for him. (laughs) Stop Um, wasting our time. (laughs) So... Another thing I wanted to talk to you guys about is consent and the way that that conversation, if we're thinking about the last five years and how things have developed, how that conversation has changed. I think it's um, moved from a more cut and dry conversation around sexual violence, which we could all understand to be vile and vicious, to a more nuanced conversation about enthusiasm, enthusiastic consent, and um, uh, a more subtle analysis of the ways in which women are corralled into doing sexual activity that they're not even really that enthusiastic about, but feel obliged to, to simply because of the situation that's in. Yes, no. Mm -hmm. And I think that men are being they're not being truthful with us when they're going, oh, um, well, uh, how was I supposed to know? In any other situation in life that doesn't involve genitals, you can see if somebody's, like, <laughs> enthusiastic about being there or not, you know? So why is it suddenly genitals come into the picture and suddenly, oh, I don't know, I didn't see, well, it's she didn't say no, area. you know? In any other situation in life, we can read body language, you know? We can read facial expression. And um, if we're really not sure, we can just ask mm-hmm. and check, you know? Exactly. That doesn't have to be something unsexy, you know? Mm. There, if, if, if you find that, like, having any kind of words involved when you're having sex is something devastatingly unsexy, then maybe mm. you're doing sex wrong. <laughs> yes, like, that conversation about communication and enthusiasm mm. and consent is something that I think is, is happening. I feel the same way, especially within the kind of, I guess, the sort of bubble that I inhabit as as we all do you know online and in the conversations I'm having offline it feels so exciting that that conversation is evolving the one thing I would also say is that there is also that moment for me in my work a lot of it is schools and universities and and talking with young people and one of the things that I find hard and upsetting at the moment but important because it makes me realise how much further we have to go is that that conversation isn't necessarily translating further so I am still very much speaking to young people on a weekly basis who don't understand at all their rights and responsibilities in sexual relationships where the idea of consent really does go out the window schools where you hear phrases like rape is a compliment really it's not rape if she enjoys it um girls of 13 saying they've seen a video of porn on a boy's mobile phone at school and now they think that when you have sex the woman has to be hurting and crying a school where they've had a rape case involving a 14 year old boy and a teacher has said to him why didn't you stop when she was crying and he's looked straight back at her baffled and said because it's normal for girls to cry during sex 
and again and again and again meeting young people who think that a rapist is a stranger in a dark alleyway and you have to struggle and fight and if you're stupid enough to have been drinking or wearing a miniskirt it's your own fault and your boyfriend can't rape you because he's your boyfriend you have to have sex with him mm. so I think it's really important to recognise that in our schools these more enlightened conversations that we're having are not necessarily penetrating yeah. I want to just ask a question because the campaign for sex and relationships yeah. education in schools that's something we won right yes but it hasn't happened yet and right. I think how it happens and what it looks like is crucial so mm. the department for education is consulting right now on what exactly that will look like and mm. I've been part of that consultation process and I know that lots of the other organizations that also campaign for SRE mm. have been as well what that translates to I think at a granular level is just vitally important and we've yet to see Um, but hopefully I think a lot of us have been banging on for so long now about the fact that it must include consent and online porn and LGBTQ identities and rights as well and relationships so I'm hopeful I'm really hopeful that this will change because it seems almost like there's a kind of gulf between women of our age and older who, you know, have read Cat Person, the New Yorker story, who have thought about these issues for many years and, you know, would call ourselves sort of fourth-wave feminists, and the younger school-age women and girls who you're talking about. And, Laura, you write in your book about a kind of retro-sexism, which you're seeing a resurgence of. It seems like there's, there's two different things happening here. I think so, although I do, it's not as separate as all that because, of course, young people are hugely active on social media and so sure. they are also influenced by voices like, like Rennie's and, you know, by Tumblr and feminist stuff that they found online and I'm certainly also seeing a resurgence of feminist societies in schools and, and young people talking about that, which fills me with hope. But, yes, there is also that divide. We're at a really unique moment, actually, in history at the moment that will never be repeated again and that has never happened before where we have a generation of non-digital natives parenting and educating a generation of digital natives and I think that the gulf in experience and daily lived reality that that presents can't be overestimated and the impact of social media and sexting and online porn is massive for girls and is the wallpaper of their daily lives and baffling and and confusing for boys as well and they really need support to deal with that and open conversations and too often what they get instead is a closeness and stigma and silencing and shame. I think one of the things that it seems like we're talking about a lot is where sexual objectification ends or begins and where sexual empowerment ends and begins and, and who gets to decide those things. And that's something both of you guys have written about. Mm-hmm. I think I'm just very interested in like men not having the mic on this all the time and actually like women being allowed to have sexual desire, full stop. I think this is also a big part of the problem and... You know, I think it's a broader issue about treating people with respect and, you know, understanding their boundaries, whatever gender they may be. We've got this pernicious narrative in life that just equates women's bodies with being sexually available or, you know, or having their lives judged by their sexual potential or lack thereof that that really needs to be um, upended. And I'm starting to really believe that only women are going to be able to upend that. I don't know if I trust men. To, I don't believe... I just don't trust men to be able to deconstruct something in their own minds that an entire society is telling them this is absolutely a massive part of being a man. Well, the idea of having the gaze, mm-hmm. of, being the, of, of having the male gaze. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And, of course, you know, all these ridiculous, absurd double standards 
that a man should be turned off by a woman who wants sex, but I thought that's what you want too. <laughs> so what's the problem here, you know? Like, what is the problem? Yeah. It's, well, it's so um, interesting about sort of power and threat, because that's, mm. that's about a self-empowerment is threatening. Mm. It's a sense of, well, if you're turned on, do you need me? Or, you know, it, it raises all these quite interesting questions, I think. And of course, you know, men who are true feminist allies, whatever that means, are discussing this with one another like what does it really mean to be a man now that we're sort of unlinking that from gender domination Mm. and we're saying oh actually um yeah like your whole sense of self and worth in the total abstract sense we're not talking about every individual man here before somebody complains (laughs) is somehow linked to a relationship with a woman and and how that is dominant in some way and hopefully you know progressive men are starting to really think about that I think what you said about self-empowerment is really crucial as well because of course we want women to be sexualized and objectified as long as it's within very strict and uh, mandated confines it's when they start taking that on themselves that it becomes suddenly threatening and they have to be shut down and there was nowhere a more perfect kind of example of that I think than during the sort of nude photo hacks of celebrity women Mm. you know the idea that when they're on screen and it's packaged very much for our consumption as a society um, we're very happy in that case to see them naked but as soon as it was something that they were claiming themselves an enjoyment of their own sexuality that was something to shame them for and sort of slut shame them and and tear them down and I think that society is very clever about that it's very clever about celebrating women who are being portrayed in a certain way and packaged in a certain way but really tearing them down when they do it for themselves and the way they do it is to yes to blame individuals Mm. and to focus on an individual and to point at a woman and and I think in particular perhaps at, at black women in the public eye and to accuse them of being the problem for women you know you see it a lot with Rihanna you see it with Beyonce as well people saying you know oh look at her doing all that and she claims to empower girls and you just think hang on a minute let's zoom out here because we're talking about a a culture in which we know that girls are five when they first start worrying about the size and shape of their bodies we know that a quarter of seven-year-old girls has dieted to lose weight and that that number goes up to 80% for 10-year-old girls which is devastating we bring women up in a world that tells them your value lies in your looks your body is all you are and you'll be valued on it and then we put them into an incredibly male-dominated industry where they're given very strong instructions about how they must package and and present themselves and then also make individual choices within that and then we go oh well she's the problem allow people to set their boundaries you know on this conversation and an issue that's you know just struck me was you know people who have sex for money particularly women I think part of the reason society reviles them is because they're like, oh, I'm taking control of this situation, you know? But the, the same, you know, revulsion isn't heaped upon people who want to violate women's sexual boundaries. You know, people should be able to set their boundaries and have them respected. But, you know, the more I think about this and the older I get, I'm starting to realise that just respecting of people's boundaries in general, mm. out, even outside of sexual activity, is something that society really needs to work on, seriously. <laughs> like, And I'm starting to think that like, if we don't allow people to come to their own terms about you know, how they want to interact with the world and then have that respected, in general, like, how on earth are we going to have that in sexual activity at all? It's a, it's a massive problem. Another thing that's coming up and very much in my mind at the moment is that uh, most large UK companies are going to have to uh, publish their gender pay gaps really quite soon next month. Not that many of them have done it so far, although some have. And I wondered whether you guys think that this is going to bring about 
a change? I think it's a step in the right direction and an important one. I think it starts conversations. I think it forces a little bit of transparency in an area that's been shrouded very deliberately in darkness for too long. I think it's not the perfect and complete system, of course. Um, we've really seen that recently and that some of the companies that have published these perfect 50-50 splits and it's been quickly discovered that actually either they've been really falsely reporting or some of them, even where they have a massive gender pay gap, have kind of swept it under the carpet by saying, oh no, we've, we've only compared people on the same bands and therefore it's you know, a very negligible gap, which doesn't take into account the fact that all of the people in organisational top levels in their company are, are men and all of the people on the lowest rungs of the ladder are women. Mm, so we've got to be careful, there's away a lot of loopholes. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Um, but I think it is an important first step and, and again, as with everything else, I think the important part is not letting that be the end of the conversation because the next step has to be about looking at this as a systemic issue and saying what's systemic, what institutional things can we put in place that will really make a difference. What are the policy changes, such as around the issue of pay, that you would like to see? What are the changes you would like to see? Because we, you know, there's a social change that we're talking about, but we also need uh, legislative change, I think, for things to, to happen top down as well. Oh, legislation. Well, you know, I'm somebody who's very much about winning hearts and minds, first and foremost. Mm -hmm. I think particularly with, like, immigration acts and race relation acts that have happened in Britain over the last year, hearts and minds haven't necessarily followed them. Mm. I was just listening to an interview on my way here with uh, the campaigner Gina Martin, who is busy trying to change the law on upskirting. I think it's totally admirable what she's doing. At the same time, I feel uneasy at the idea of punitive consequences. I want somebody who feels inclined to upskirt to know why it's wrong in the first place. Taking a picture of somebody's skull. Yeah, exactly. It's reassuring to know if they do that, then they will be prosecuted. But at the same time, you know, because obviously we don't want them to be doing that and then the law being like, oh, it's fine. Go ahead. But we want hearts and minds to change so that somebody who feels inclined to do that is like, oh, um, actually it's wrong to objectify that person and how they're just having fun in a yeah. yeah how would they feel like they're just having fun in a festival mm. how would they feel because they're a human being not because they could be my wife mother daughter because come on that's a ridiculous refrain that needs to be dumped and ditched mm. in 2018 so that's really where i'm i'm at at the moment uh, yeah, i couldn't agree more about that culture shift that needs to happen and i also think I'd, I'd like to see real concrete shift happening from businesses and organisations. For example, it's absolutely shocking but true that many businesses don't have in place a very clear workplace sexual harassment policy, clear transparent reporting procedures that protect the victim from backlash as a result of reporting, really clear maternity discrimination policies, and I think that the, there's also very clear things that the government could do. For example, under the last government, Section 40 of the Equality Act was repealed, and that's the third part harassment duty. In other words, the bit that meant that an employer was responsible for protecting their employees from harassment by a client or a customer rather than a colleague, which leaves women completely open you know, to abuse. Women working in a bar, for example, women working in a hospital to abuse from patients. That's something very clear that could be changed that would make a big difference, but also extending full rights in the workplace to workers regardless of contracts. So people on zero hours or precarious contracts who at the moment are much less well protected and also much more likely to experience
experience these forms of abuse. And I also think there's a lot we could be calling on the government to do more broadly to look at gender equality in its broadest sense, you know, beyond the workplace, because of course these things are connected. We need to see action on, on period poverty, on the fact that there are girls in this country not going to school because they don't have sanitary provisions, on the fact that, you know, just miles from here, women in Yarlswood are being detained indefinitely after having been the victims of sexual violence, on issues like funding for our rape crisis and refuge centres, where if the government goes ahead with its planned funding changes to, to short-term housing funding, then 40% of our women's refuges are likely to have to close their doors for good. These are huge and pressing issues, and I think we need to demand change. Yeah, I think one of the things that we see again and again and again is us women sort of having to slot into a system that was not designed to accommodate us. And I think I've been thinking a lot about um, parental leave and um, maternity leave, and it, it seems straight. It seems simple to me that if men had an allocation of leave that if they didn't take, they would lose. But that would change. That would shift the burden or the sort of responsibility of the woman to take the entire time and the man to feel guilty for taking two weeks. If that structure was changed, it, it seems like to me that that would be a, a big shift. More. I'm massively in favour of it. One of the problems I think at the moment is that our provisions around these issues are just so pathetically toothless. You know, so yes, it's great that we've got shared parental leave, but in reality, for many families, it simply doesn't make financial sense to use it because it's not good enough. Yes, at the moment, everyone has the right to ask for flexible working hours, but legally, the only thing an employer has to do is say that they've considered it seriously and then they can reject it. You know, it's, it's not it's enough. Not we need to go further. Just listening to this conversation, I think like, the vast majority of MPs just need to be sacked. <laughs> you know, we just need to... The people who are voting in favour of our legislation need to actually be caring mm. about people beyond, you know, those who look like them. Yeah, and need um, to be representative exactly, of the society exactly. they serve. You know, huge systemic issues that certain people who are MPs, I won't name names, couldn't give a toss about, mm. frankly, because it doesn't affect them or because mm. they're male and they're white and they, you know, went to Eton and, and Oxford and they've always been in environments where all women do for them is make their bed and clean up for them and make sure that there's a hot meal for mm. them at the end of the day. And why change it if that works for mm-hmm. them? Yeah, and, that's... you know, they have a wife and children, but they never see them mm. um, because they're Mr. Big Man going around uh, doing important things, so they don't think that women do important things. Like I say, I'm not naming names, but they expose themselves often. Yeah, so sack them all. <laughs> Start again. And, and let's get people actually working in favour for women. I can say that, because I'm in culture, I'm not in politics, so it's fine. <laughs> the representation in culture is... I was going to say just as important. I don't want to compare them, but it's, it's, it's really important. I think the two really feed off one another. I'm very into hearts and minds. That's how, that's how I'm feeling at the moment. I feel like people don't like it. I know I don't like it when I feel imposed on top down. So culture can win hearts and minds in that way, definitely. So at the Oscar ceremony on Sunday, when Frances McDormand won her prize, she said, at the end of her speech, she said, I've got two words for you, inclusion rider. And there was a spike in Google searches for people were like, what is this thing, inclusion rider? What it means is very straightforward. When you're a big Hollywood star, you can demand certain things in your contract, be it, you know, alcohol in your green room or whatever, or important things like more diversity on the cast and crew. If you guys had an inclusion rider, what would it say? 
<laughs> I think it's brilliant. I love the idea of it. And the reason is because we are so used to expecting people who experience any form of oppression to be the ones to fix it. And what this does is it says this is about what we can do as people with privilege in any given scenario to share it. Um, so I think it's so exciting. I think what I would say is it needs to be about everything. I don't want it just to be about the cast and crew. I want it to be about you know the fact that women only get 28% of speaking roles in films and they're three times more likely to take their clothes off. So you know what's happening on screen? Who's speaking? Whose story is it that we're hearing? And whose perspective are we hearing it from? And what are the camera angles? You know there is so much further that you could go with it, and I think that's really exciting. Yeah, I mean uh, you know on hearing that question, I think I probably would not like to be a Hollywood actor. I'd probably <laughs> be a Hollywood screenwriter and actually have some control over the, the narratives because if you write the roles then people can act them but if you if the roles aren't written then an actor is horribly limited and also you know if I was a screenwriter or a producer then you know I could write the story or cast the story and then an actor wouldn't feel like they had to do a, an inclusion writer because they'd feel confident they were, they were working on a project that it was in, embedded in. I'd like to go right down to the root of the issue. Rennie and Laura, thank you so much for talking to me. It's Thanks been a for having us. us. So next we're going to hear from Leila Slamani, who is a French journalist, novelist and President Macron's Francophone Affairs Minister. We'll be hearing what that entails exactly later. She's most famous for her book Lullaby, which has recently been published in English. And it's a real page turner. It's a best-selling thriller, but also a literary prize winner. It won the Prix Goncourt, France's most prestigious literary prize, last year. The book is inspired by the real-life murder of two young children by their nanny in New York in 2012. And this horrifying incident is a a way in for Leila Slamani as a writer to talk about a lot of the things that we've been discussing in this episode around the issues of motherhood, womanhood, the kind of compromises and sacrifices that women make all the time every day, particularly when they're juggling professional life and caring for children. She also writes about the way that traditionally female work, things like care, are invisible and devalued in our society. We don't think about nannies and the work that they do every day. She's looking also at the idea of maternal instinct and whether this really is a biological thing or whether it's something that we as a society have constructed and how it functions. Leila Slamani is very interested in female sexuality. Her first novel, which translates as In the Ogre's Garden, was about sex addiction. And her latest book, Sex and Lies, Sexual Life in Morocco, takes the real-life testimonies of women talking very openly about sex. So here she is, Leila Slamani. Leila, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Uh, thank you for having me. So your book, Lullaby, as it's called in, in its British publication, is based on a real-life murder. And I just wondered if you could tell me how you felt, really, when you first read about that 
horrific oh, murder in the press. I wouldn't say it's based on a, on a real story. Well, well, inspired by one in that there, no, there was I this murder. No, I would say that the real story gave me the idea of the book. This moment I had the idea of writing a novel about a nanny, but I didn't know exactly how I was going to write it. So when I discovered this, uh, this story that happened in New York, I had the idea of beginning by a murder. And after this story, I discovered the Louise Woodward case. And it was very interesting too. And that's why I called my nanny Louise because of this case. And I wanted to confront the, the extreme fear of losing my children and of uh, seeing my children being harmed by someone else and by the nanny I, I've chosen. So yes, it gave me the idea that I had to confront those, uh, those fears. And you were a new mother at that stage, is that right? Yes, I had a little baby, my son, who is six now, and I just hired a, a nanny, so I was okay. exactly in the same situation as Miriam at the beginning of the novel. It's interesting that this relationship between particularly mothers and nannies hasn't been explored very much in fiction. I wonder why. The figure of the nanny has been a little bit explored. You know, Mary Poppins, for example, of, of mm -hmm. uh, Mrs. David's Fire by the cinema. You have this very positive figure of the nanny. She's the one coming in a home and she repairs everything and she puts the family mm -hmm. together. And at the end, everyone is very happy thanks to this wonderful nanny, to this it's Mary like Poppins. Like a fairy tale figure. Yeah. But uh, in the same time, in France, for example, in the literature, we have some uh, very dark figures of, uh, of nannies or of of maids, for example, the maids by Jean Genet. So we have those dark uh, characters and I wanted in a certain way to be in this tradition. You had a nanny growing up. What was she like as a figure? What was her sort of position within the family? How, how did that dynamic work? She had a very ambiguous and weird position because at the same time she was um, like a member of the family because she was with us all the time and she was sleeping in our home and she wasn't married, she didn't have her own children. And actually we used to call her Muima, which means in Arabic, uh, little mother. But at the same time, I knew even as a little girl, I knew that she was not my mother and that the woman I loved most was my mother and that I knew that I felt a little, um, the jealousy between my mother and my and my nanny. And what was sad is that my nanny, she couldn't read or write. And uh, the more we grew up and the more we had more to share with my mother because uh, we had a lot of intellectual interests together. And my nanny, I think, felt very lonely because she couldn't share this with us. So it was very, very sad. And I could feel sometimes the humiliation and the, the grief she could have. It's interesting in the book because I think something that really comes across is that sense Louise has of one day losing the children, of them growing up and sort of growing out of her. And then at the same time, you have the figure of the mother who has these competing desires for home and then for this world outside home, which is work and fulfillment through work. Yeah, you know, I think that the work of a nanny is very difficult because this is the life of a nanny is full of breakups. It's like a life where <laughs> you will have a lot of love breakups. You raise a child, you love him and you love him more and more and then you have to say goodbye and you redo it again and again and again and I think it must be exhausting. It's very difficult to involve in a relationship with a, a child and then to say just goodbye and to have to forget the the child. For the mother, I think that Miriam just wants at one point to be something else than a mother. And she feels that the life at home, the life that Louise have, is very boring and very repetitive. Even it's a little bit 
taboo to say this, but I think that the the life at home can be horrible and very annoying. You it do the same thing every day. Yeah, and very frustrating mm. because it's not socially valued. No one is telling you, wow, bravo, you did a washing machine and you, <laughs> you cooked a puree for your children. No one cares. People think it's just normal. Mm. And every day is the same thing because the life of a children is very repetitive. So I think it's very difficult for Miriam to discover that she's bored as a mother. Mm. Well, there's a sense of kind of double guilt. There's a guilt for, like you say, for only being a mother, in inverted commas, and then there's a guilt for being a working mother and for being away from your children. So it's like you can't win either way. Exactly, you can't win. I think that a lot of people t- are telling you, you know where you are going to be a mother. You're going to feel so much love and so much uh, power and you're never going to be lonely again but that's absolutely not (laughs) true the book starts with this very shocking first line the baby is dead why did you choose to start with the death the sort of culmination of events and then work backwards or sort of hop back in time and lead up to that again because you know I wanted the, the reader to be very active in the, the reading of the book I wanted him to be a sort of a investigator mm-hmm. and to look at every details of the life of uh, Louise and the life of Miriam and Paul and try to understand how is it possible and why did she do this and maybe to look at all the things that Miriam and Paul are ignoring because they don't see Louise. I wanted to give some clues. It's like a puzzle. You can try to understand who is this mysterious character Louise but at the end you can't really say who she is. You Like at the end I don't know. Do you think she's unknowable? I think that everyone is unknowable. I think that we... It's an illusion to say, oh, I know him by heart, or I know this person very well. Everyone is unknowable. There's always something in one another that is unreachable. There is always a part of secret. And are you interested in the parts of us which are kind of dark and hidden? Yes, and I think that's why I write. I, that's the, the reason why I'm so interested in characters and why I want to build stories, because I... I love to confront this darkness and you know I was raised reading a lot of Russian literature and I think that Russian writers are specifically talented to speak about this darkness and even about the evil inside of each human being. In the book, Paris is painted as it's kind of quite a harsh and divided place. It feels like a place of huge inequality. I mean, is that how you see it, living there? Yes, I wanted to describe Paris as I see it, not as the romantic and touristic cliché that we have about Paris. Paris is a wonderful town, but it's also a very violent town, Very a lot of inequality, as you said, and it's sometimes a very sad town, very melancholic. In the winter, Paris is very grey, very cold. People are not looking at each other. People are very selfish sometimes in the in the streets of Paris. You feel very anonymous, very lonely. And also, I love to write about the cities, the big cities. And I wanted to, to write about what I call the sort of underworld, the world of the children, little children and nannies, because this is a world nobody cares about because they don't make money, they produce nothing. It's just a, a world of care. I suppose it's also a world that's quite invisible to lots of people who are going and working in offices at the exact hours of the day when in the parks and the playgrounds there are the nannies. Exactly, and you know as a writer I I write in my own home and sometimes in the afternoon I need to go out to clear my head and 
I'm always wondering what is happening in the afternoon in the apartments. Who is is there and who is walking in the street? And I, I think that this question, what is happening during the afternoon when the big people, the important people are in the offices, what is happening is a very good question to begin a novel. Can you tell me what your first impressions of Paris were when you first visited? You were a child, I think, from Morocco. First time I went to Paris, I was like, I think I was 10 and I went to I remember that I went to Pigalle with my mother so it was in 1994 maybe and I remember that Pigalle was a very different from today it was full of sex shop and drug addicts of prostitutes and it was very shocking but at the same time very fascinating not shocking in a moral way but um, it was new and I, I wanted to understand what it was you know I wanted to be part of this I wanted to be part of the city. I wanted to be like the Parisian woman I saw on the bridges, so beautiful with <laughs> cigarettes and running with high heels. And I was like, how is it possible? <laughs> is it possible that one day I could be one of them? So I was very attracted by the town. And your your own upbringing back in Morocco, was it kind of a conservative upbringing or what, what was the home oh, life? Not at all. Like? It was very liberal. I have two sisters and my father was a banker and my mother is a doctor. And we were always um, talking and talking and a lot of debate and very, a lot of laughings. And uh, we had a lot of fun and it was very free. My parents, uh, they always told us that the most important thing in life was freedom, that you can do everything and that you shouldn't be stopped by people telling you it's impossible or people telling you that it's not uh, the good thing to do as you are Moroccan or you're Muslim or you're this. So my, my parents, they were very, very free. So your first novel was about sort of sex addiction mm -hmm. and your latest book, you've taken testimonies of women about issues around kind of female desire is female sexuality and desire more broadly, is that something that you've been always interested in? Yes, I'm interested in the body. I think that the body is something very intense to explore as a writer. The body is the way I see you and you see me. It's how we are vulnerable, it's how we are fragile, how we can be harmed, but it's also how we can be loved and touched and moved. Sometimes I think that the French literature is very intellectual. It's a lot about the soul and the intellect. But I think that we need to speak also about the body. And I think that as a woman citizen, it is very different the body of a woman in the street or the body of a man. When we, you are a woman, you know what it is to be a body and mm -hmm. the fact that people are commenting on your body and how, how you look and what you wear. When you gathered these stories from women in Morocco, was there anything that kind of surprised you? I wouldn't say surprised because uh, I knew a lot about the situation uh, of Morocco. But I think that what shocked me the most, what um, strikes me the most, was the fact that a lot of families were very harsh towards those girls who face rape or who are homosexual. And I was very, very sad and very shocked to discover that so many families, when a, a girl comes home and say, I was raped, the mother and the father say, you go out. Or the mother and the father say, we are going to marry you to your rapist. Was it cathartic in some sense for these women to tell their stories? 
Of course, I think you know that it's the same thing as the Me Too. Women wants to break the silence. And I think that every woman in the United States or in Morocco or in India, I don't know, when they have faced so much violence and so much harassment and so much shame too, they want to break the silence and to say not only me too, but just me, I, I count, I exist, I have a destiny and I have rights. On the subject of Me Too, what are your views on that? Do you feel there's there's been in the last few weeks a sort of, not exactly a backlash, but a sense that has this gone too far? I mean, for example, there was a letter from, from French women, an open letter. You know, I think it's very easy to say it's gone too far, too far. I don't understand. Mm. I think that's the male domination who's gone too far and for <laughs> a very long time. And those women are defending the freedom to bother for men. But I'm defending the right of none being bothered for women. And even if they are afraid of a sort of puritanism, I'm asking them, do you think that in Casablanca, in Cairo, in New Delhi, in Lima, in Kinshasa or in Mosul, the women walking in the streets, fearing of being raped, of being harassed, do you really think they are like, oh my God, I'm worried that my world is going to be puritan? I think it's, it's mm. stupid and mm. it's not the point. And thinking about your your writing style, is this something that just comes very naturally to you or have you sort of worked at it and crafted it? I worked so much. <laughs> no, you know, I, I worked a lot to find my, my voice, to find my style. I began writing when I was uh, maybe 20 and I wrote, I wrote, I wrote so many novels that were absolutely boring and uh, <laughs> absolutely wrong and bad and I throw them away and uh, one day I met my actual editor today Jean-Marie Laclaftine in France and he's the one who helped me find my voice he told me you have to be very clear very neat I think that your voice is very clinical is it true that you wanted to be an actor at some stage? Yes, I wanted, but because, you know, I think I'm fascinated by characters and I'm fascinated by stories. So in a certain way, it was like in the Woody Allen movie, you know, the, the Rosa of Cairo. Mm -hmm. I wanted to go in the screen. I wanted to be part of the story. But then I understand, no, it's not your job. Your job <laughs> is to, to tell the story, to write the story and to be behind the screen. And now am I right in thinking you have a sort of additional job to writing, which is as Macron's Francophone Affairs Minister? What, what does that mean exactly? Uh, it means that I represent France inside of an international organization of Francophonie. So I'm the one representing France. But it's also um, a sort of ambassador role because I try to be the ambassador not of a country, but of a language. Mm -hmm. And I'm the ambassador of French language. And the idea today is to defend the idea that the French language doesn't exist on in France, but that it has his own life in Burkina Faso, Senegal, Morocco, but also Canada, and that we have today great writers, great poets who are not French, but who are uh, writing in French language. And, you know, it's very weird because when you hear that Samuel Beckett used to write in French, everyone is saying, wow, it's so romantic, mm. he chose French. But when you have an Algerian or a Senegalese writer writing in French, you say, oh, he's a victim of colonialism. So do you think that it's wrong to see the French language is still having colonial overtones? Do you think it's 
in your experience, has is it always a choice for writers in these other countries where French is spoken oh, I to, think, to write in French? I think we have to face the, the colonial question, but it doesn't have to be black or white. You can say that you love French language and that you love writing in French language, and at the same time, you can write a book about colonization with this language. And I think that people have to accept the fact that I am free and that I yeah. decided to do this, that I'm not just a victim. And is it true that Macron also asked you to be his culture minister and uh, that you said no? <laughs> I said I don't want to be a minister. Okay. You want to be a writer? Exactly. Are you working on another novel? Yes. I'm just on the beginning. I'm trying to find some documents and I'm building my characters, everything. But I love this moment when you begin to, to think about the, the novel. Which is the best part of the writing process? The last word. <laughs> the full stop. Yes, yes, it's the best part because at the end of the book you are exhausted and you just want to, uh, for me, you just want to say, oh, stop, please, I don't want to hear about them anymore. I hate them. I hate Louise. I hate me. I am. <laughs> but um, yes, I think it's the end, the, the best moment. That's it for this week. Leila Slamani's book Lullaby is out now and Rennie Edo-Lodge and Laura Bates will be appearing at the WOW Women of the World Festival at the South Bank Centre in London and it runs until the 11th of March. Laura Bates's book Misogynation and a new edition of Rennie Edo-Lodge's Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race are both out now and Rennie's new podcast about race starts later this month. Next week, I'm going on holiday, but we will be publishing J.M. Katsia's short story, The Dog, which we recorded at the Hay Literary Festival in Cartagena, Colombia, last month. And you can catch up with our entire episode from Cartagena in our back catalogue. You can subscribe on any podcast app or listen online at ft.com slash everything else. Please leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts to help other listeners find us. Everything we've talked about today is going to be on our Facebook page, Everything Else Podcast, and you can let us know what you think by emailing us at everythingelse at ft.com. This podcast is produced by Chica Ayres, I've been Griselda Murray-Brown, and our music is composed and produced by Fatum. <laughs>